0: this is voa news via remote i'm tommy mcneil pope francis said saturday that he would meet soon with ukrainian officials to discuss the possibility of a visit to their country he disclosed a coming meeting in a question and answer session with children in one of the vatican's main courtyards when a ukrainian boy named uh, asked him if he would go to Ukraine to save the children suffering there. The 85-year-old Francis responded that he often thought of Ukrainian children and wanted to visit the country but had to choose the right time. The Pope has been using a wheelchair lately because of knee pain. U.S. intelligence agencies have begun a review of how they judge the will and ability of foreign governments to fight. American spy services underestimated Ukraine's will to fight while overestimating Russia's ability to overrun its neighbor, even as those agencies accurately predicted Russian President Vladimir Putin would order an invasion. The agencies now face bipartisan pressure to review what they got wrong beforehand, especially after their mistakes in judging Afghanistan last year. U.S. intelligence continues to have a critical role in Ukraine, and as the White House ramps up weapons deliveries to Ukraine, officials are trying to predict what Putin might see as an escalatory, and the U.S. is seeking to avoid a direct war with Russia. And again, Pope Francis has said that he would meet soon with Ukrainian officials to discuss the possibility of a visit to the country, disclosing the coming meeting in a question and answer session with children in one of the Vatican's main courtyards. And the Ukrainian boy asked him if he could go to Ukraine to save the children suffering there. And Francis responded that he often thought of Ukrainian children and wanted to help them. There's more at VOANews.com. This is VOA News. A small private airplane mistakenly entered restricted airspace near U.S. President Joe Biden's Delaware vacation home Saturday, prompting the brief evacuation of the president and first lady. The White House said that there was no threat to Biden or his family and that precautionary measures were taken after the situation was assessed. Biden and his wife, Jill, returned to the Rehoboth Beach home. The U.S. Secret Service said in a statement that the plane was immediately escorted from the restricted airspace after mistakenly entered a secure area. The agency said it would interview the pilot, who, according to preliminary investigation, was not on the proper radio channel and was not following published flight guidance. As a standard practice for presidential trips outside Washington, the Federal Aviation Administration published flight restrictions earlier this week before Biden's Beach Town visit. The restrictions include a 10-mile radius no-fly zone contained with a 30-mile restricted zone. Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah al-Khamenei has uh, acknowledged that Iran took the oil from two Greek tankers last month and helicopter-launched raids in the Persian Gulf. He said the confiscations were retaliation for Greece's role and the U.S. seizure of crude oil from an Iranian-flagged tanker the same week in the Mediterranean Sea violating Washington's harsh sanctions on the Islamic Republic. I mean, he said that you stole our oil, we took it back from you. Taking back a stolen property is not called stealing. The seizures ratcheted up tensions between Iran and the West, already simmering over Iran's tattered nuclear deal with world powers. A Texas state senator says that the state agency investigating the mass shooting at an elementary school in Evaldi has determined that the commander facing criticism for the slow police response was not carrying a radio as the massacre unfolded. Senator Roland Guterres told the Associated Press that a Texas Department of Public Safety official told him school district police Chief uh, Pete Arredondo was without a radio during the May 24th attack as, uh, by a lone gunman at Rob Elementary School that left 19 students and two teachers dead. Arredondo had not responded to interview requests from the AP. The head of the DPS has criticized Arredondo for acting too slowly. Guterres said Thursday that the Arredondo was not informed of 911 calls from terrified children inside the school during the shooting. And recapping our top story, Pope Francis has said that he would meet soon with Ukrainian officials to discuss the possibility of a visit to the country, describing the coming meeting in a question-and-answer session with children in one of the Vatican's main courtyards. There is more at VOANews.com. Again, that is VOANews.com. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. This is
1: Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on The Voice of America on this edition of the program, an update on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It has been almost 100 days since the Kremlin launched a senseless war on neighboring Ukraine. The continuation of its illegal annexation of Crimea and destabilization campaign in the southeastern Donbass region in 2014. Ukraine's resilience in the face of Moscow's unprovoked attack on February 24 remains unflinching. The West continues to provide massive weapons transfers and humanitarian aid and maintains punishing sanctions against Moscow. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Here's the latest. VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell reports, quote, U.S. President Joe Biden announced, that the United States is providing a $700 million package of more advanced rocket systems and munitions as the Russian invasion enters its fourth month, closed quote. But White House officials say Ukraine has vowed not to fire those rockets into Russian territory, a condition of the delivery. The new package includes advanced weaponry, including HIMARS, that means high mobility artillery rocket systems with battlefield munitions, to defend ukrainian territory from further russian advances particularly in the eastern and southern Donbas region in a recent opinion editorial that president joe biden penned for the new york times he said quote america's goal is straightforward we want to see a democratic independent sovereign and prosperous ukraine with the means to deter and defend itself against further aggression closed quote mr biden added that standing by ukraine in its hour of need is not just the right thing to do it is in our vital national interests to ensure a peaceful and stable europe and to make it clear that might does not make right Close quote the us congress recently allocated a further 40 billion dollar package of assistance and washington has rallied military donations from more than 40 other countries the economist magazine and european union allies recently agreed on a partial embargo on russian oil europe will also be sending nearly 10 billion dollars of aid to ukraine the war has spawned one of the largest refugee crises since world war ii numerous press reports indicate that more than 6.8 million refugees have left ukraine while an estimated 8 million people had been displaced within the country by early may 90 percent of ukrainian refugees are women and children for more on the crisis and how to bring the conflict to an end, we turn to two distinguished experts. Andrea Kendall-Taylor is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. And she is a frequent panelist at these VOA microphones. And Jonathan Katz, Senior Fellow and Director of Democracy Initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, a think tank based here in Washington, and both panelists join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to you both.
2: It's good to be here. Good to be back,
1: Carol. Andrea Kendall-Taylor, let me start with you. As I said, it's been about 100 days into this unlawful invasion that Vladimir Putin thought would result in a quick capture of all of Ukraine, but his troops have now retreated to the east and south. Where do things stand in your view? What's the status of the conflict on the ground?
2: It's a good question. As you said, you know, the Kremlin was defeated in their bid for Kiev. They were forced to withdraw those forces to the east and to the south. I think we've now entered a phase though where it's getting exceedingly difficult to gauge the future trajectory of the conflict. I think at this moment in time, we're seeing a lot of back and forth with territory changing hands and many uneven developments in different parts of the country. And so I think observers, as we're watching this, will need to be careful about drawing strong conclusions based on the day-to-day, this ebb and flow of this most recent phase. AS RUSSIA HAS FOCUSED ITS EFFORTS ON THE TERRITORY IN THE Donbass, WE DO SEE THAT IN SOME PLACES THEY ARE NOW MAKING SOME INCREMENTAL GAINS. ITS OFFENSIVE IS SLOW, BUT I THINK THERE IS SOME EVIDENCE THAT RUSSIAN FORCES HAVE BEGUN TO ADAPT AND TO BEGIN TO CORRECT FOR SOME OF THE TACTICAL INCOMPETENCE THAT WE'VE SEEN EARLIER. I THINK IT REVEALS PERHAPS THAT IN SOME PARTS ALONG THIS FRONT THAT UKRAINE'S MILITARY MAY BE A BIT PRECARIOUS IN SOME AREAS. You know, President Zelensky himself has come out to say that Ukraine is losing between 50 and 100 in fighters per day. So I think that's the picture that I see. It's a lot of ebbing and flowing because, of course, the Ukrainian forces, who are buoyed by much higher levels of morale and their incredible heroism in Ukraine, they are making important counteroffensives around Kharkiv, Kherson. And so it, it's this uneven picture, I think, that we've entered in, and it's very difficult to tell how it goes which is why the Biden administration's announcement to send this new package of military aid is so critical. It is imperative now that the United States and European allies do as much as they can in this phase of the conflict to put Kiev in the best position as possible as they defend themselves.
1: Thank you, Andrea, for that. And we certainly will be talking about that $700 million package and the difference it will make. But let me get Jonathan Katz to weigh in on the state of play. Jonathan. Thank hey, you, Carol. I
3: mean, I agree with what Andrea just laid out, too, about this uncertainty. First of all, there's several battles occurring at the same time. One, we're speaking to the military conflict on the ground, and Andrea is right about we're at a moment where it seems like it's a grinding War, where you see changes on the battlefield, where there are Offensive, counteroffensive, hearing reports that Luhansk, that the territory there has largely been taken by Russia, but you see counteroffensives close to Kyrgyzstan, which is a city that was taken by Russian forces. So you're getting a lot of different information. You know, one conclusion that many national security leaders on both sides of Atlantic are talking about is that this won't be a short war. And so you're going to have these types of daily back and forth. And so it's one, it's hard to read into it, but you also shouldn't read into it as One side is victorious over the other, no backslapping, But I mentioned that I think there's a couple of other battles occurring, too. One is the battle, obviously, for Ukraine's security, its territorial integrity, its future, all the things that President Biden laid out. But then there's this battle against Russia that you have, the transatlantic community. And you mentioned the partial oil embargo, the sixth round of sanctions the efforts to hold Russia accountable for its war crimes, support to make certain through punitive sanctions that Russia's ability to carry out its war and the money that fuels it is cut off. So you have this battle internally in Ukraine. You have the battle to hold Russia accountable in the international community. And then you have the battle of support for Ukrainians. And you're seeing that you mentioned the military assistance that's being provided. But Congress just recently passed $40 billion in support for Ukraine for its security, military, non-military support, including additional humanitarian assistance and macroeconomic support. One thing is quite clear that there has been enormous economic devastation in the hundreds of billions of dollars carried out by Russia along with atrocities on the ground. And Ukraine and Ukrainians desperately need financial support, macroeconomic support to keep their country, their economy moving forward. And I think this is really particularly important because when you look at Russia's strategy today, you're hearing those speaking from the Kremlin. They believe that eventually the West will not be there to provide over the long term the military and economic support needed to support Ukraine and its efforts to win this war. So right now, it's a particularly important time that there be no fatigue within the transatlantic community, that there remains the unity and support that we're seeing, whether we talk about loans from the EU or we're talking about military assistance that we see coming both from Germany, the United States and the UK, that is needed now, not a week from now, Bit
1: right now. Well, thank you for that, Jonathan. You both have given us a great larger picture in context of the conflict so back to you andrea to pick up on some of jonathan's points and as well this 700 million dollar package with the new sophisticated long-range rockets that washington is now sending that ukraine has wanted very briefly you know russia says this is a serious step to escalation we know that's propaganda and hyperbole they are the ones who started this invasion and this aggression to begin with nonetheless how much of a difference is that package going to make as well as if you want to address any of the matters that Jonathan broached with regard to the longevity of the alliance's commitment. Do you think the alliance can stay the course behind Ukraine, something that Russia doesn't think it will?
2: Yes. Okay, so to start, I think, on Russia's comments about the provision of these long-range systems being escalatory, I agree with you in many cases. It is, you know, it is propaganda, and as you rightfully said, the only side that has escalated here is Russia. The thing that concerns me, though, as this war progresses, is that each side's red lines, so the red lines of Russia, United States, and Ukraine's red lines, are getting increasingly fuzzy. And it's more and more difficult to understand what would trigger some sort of escalatory response on the Russian side. And I think that is a concern. And we've seen over the course of this battle that the line for the United States has shifted. The Obama administration, including in President Biden's op-ed in the New York Times, has said very clearly that one of the guiding principles of the way that they make decisions in this conflict is that they want to avoid any sort of direct military confrontation with Russia. At the beginning, you know, the United States ruled out establishing the no-fly zone. They weren't willing to send the MiG fighters because that, at that point in time, was viewed as escalatory. But there has been a creeping of red lines, and now the fact that we are sending these advanced long-range rocket systems underscores that there's been reporting on the types of intelligence that the United States is providing to the Ukrainians, for example, that also seems to be pushing that red line even further. So I think that's still, it remains a concern is that we have such little insight into the red lines of one another that the risk of escalation does still really remain. That said, the weapons that are being sent, I think is undoubtedly a good news story. These are the weapons that Ukrainians have been asking for for some time. As I said, you know, we are seeing that the Russians in many ways are adapting and they're correcting for some of their incompetence that we saw early. An example of that is that we're seeing the Russians use their firepower and in particular their artillery to batter Ukrainian defensive positions before the Russians then follow through with armor and infantry. And many of those strikes from Russia are coming at a long distance. So Ukrainian forces haven't had the weapons with the range to neutralize those attacks. And so these new advanced long-range rocket systems do provide Ukraine with the capabilities that they need in this phase of the war, and that's really, really important. I think it ties into the question about the longevity of the alliance support. I would say that the fact that the United States is doing this is an extremely strong signal of U.S. resolve to remain committed to Ukraine. Carol, in your introduction, you mentioned the passage of the partial embargo on Russian oil. So I think still all signs continue to suggest up until this point that the allies are strongly committed, that they know and understand that this is gonna be a prolonged confrontation. And that they are going to stay the course there are small signs of fissures within the alliance of course on the oil embargo sanctions package you know hungary for example was a key holdout it took a very long time to get that package of sanctions passed you do see within the alliance some disagreements about what an acceptable end state in ukraine would look like with some allies pushing ukrainians maybe to call for a ceasefire or to get to the negotiating table now while other allies are adamant about the fact that Ukraine needs to fight as long as they are able to deal the Russians a decisive blow. So there are little fissures, but I also think that's to be expected in a NATO alliance of 30 member states. So all in all, I would say to summarize, I think the risk of escalation still remains. It's a little scary when we can't discern each other's red lines but that in this case, the provision of these weapons are a good news story. They will put the Ukrainians in the best possible position on the battlefield. And up to now, I feel good about where the alliance is in their solidarity and their commitment over the long term.
1: You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, from whom you just heard, and Jonathan Katz. He's Senior Fellow and Director of Democracy Initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, also based here in Washington. And we're updating the status of Russia's war on Ukraine and possible end games this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also find us by putting the following address into your favorite web browser, www.voanews.com encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan, Timothy Arazu from Abuja, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name, home country on the air please send an old-fashioned email to encounter at voanews.com or you can always like us and leave a comment on our facebook page and follow us on twitter well back to our program jonathan katz i would like you to pick up where andrea left off with regard to that two-part question which is the fact that some of the so-called red lines of each side whether it's the alliance in ukraine or russia are a bit fuzzier The significance of that $700 million package with long-range rockets and to what extent you think, as you said, the alliance, NATO, EU, can hold out for the long run and not, as Russia would like, cave in and somehow lose interest in supporting Ukraine, despite the fissures. How do you see that playing out?
3: That latter question, look, I think this administration, the Biden administration, has done a masterful job at pulling together the transatlantic community to respond and the way that it has responded to this conflict in support of Ukraine to carry out the type of coordination that they have on sanctions, on economic support, military support. It really is something so significant. And if you look back two years ago where we were in the Trump administration and President Trump's approach to NATO and allies, it's night and day. So they deserve a lot of credit. And on the flip side, the EU and NATO member states also deserve a lot of credit for stepping up as well. And so really, this is the height of this transatlantic cooperation and how important it is to keep it going. But there's a number of headwinds in addition to what Andre said, differences about what the final outcome of this conflict looks like in terms of security. President Macron has talked about not humiliating Russia. I don't know exactly what he means. Is it that he's unwilling to support the idea that Ukraine should control all of its territory? So I still think there's questions about whether Europe and transatlantic allies, even when they say we'll support Ukraine's decision to do what they want to do or to seek regaining their full territory, whether they mean that or not. But the other challenges that I see, too, are uh, some of the things that are out there that are global. One is what we're seeing economically. We're seeing a rise in inflation. When the EU announced its partial oil embargo, it had a tremendous impact. The price of gasoline, even in my own pump at the end of my street, I saw it basically go up from the morning to the afternoon, a very different number. And I think these economic issues do have an impact. Uh, and they will in the United States In the ability of the U.S. and the president in a midterm election year, one in which his party is likely possibly to lose control of the House and Senate to deal with these issues that are directly connected in some Ways to U.S. focus, attention, support. I think it is very unlikely to see another same size U.S. assistance package for Ukraine before the upcoming election. And so one has to wonder whether Ukraine will have enough support economically and militarily in terms of assistance beyond this tranche of funding that the United States has provided. And so the U.S. is not the only country impacted by the economic situation, and Europe and others are also looking at this food security challenges that we're seeing. Russia is blockading Ukrainian ports. Ukraine is breadbasket of the world, one of the world's largest providers of food globally. So it's really critical that the U.S. and their partners work with others globally because it creates instability in other parts of the globe as well. So you have this alliance dealing with both the challenges related to this war domestic challenges, including the United States, and we don't know what a Republican Congress would do and how it would approach this current conflict. Past November. And then we're into a presidential election year that could bring back a candidate, Donald Trump, as well. So I just want to say, I think politics matters greatly. There's been tremendous support, even bipartisan support, but that could change. On the weapon systems, look, I think that President Biden, even early on last fall, was very clear and has been very clear with the Russians that he would be supporting militarily the Ukrainians. This is for defensive means, and it's hard to argue when you look at what's taking place in Ukraine and the amount of weapons the United States has now provided upwards of over $5 billion in military support to Ukraine. There's been Russian loss of life on the battlefield. I agree with you. There's a lot of smoke, hyperbole, and disinformation when the Russians respond back to the U.S. This is one of the challenges in in communicating with the Russians is that their whole mantra is about disinformation and pushing back. So it's hard to know where those red lines are. But the United States has been clear that it would be providing this type of military support to Ukraine. At times, it has been slow, but it has been there consistently since the beginning of this conflict. And I don't think that's changed. I think the president was clear about the use of the weapons, the intent in Ukraine, not in Russia. And I think that was an important message. And I think that was the message where the U.S. is saying we are not crossing this line. But as long as you are engaging, as long as you are carrying out atrocities, Whether you're talking about executions, forced deportations, rapes, filtration camps, and wanton destruction, the United States is going to continue to support, along with NATO allies and partners, Ukraine's security and defense. So Russia needs to change its tactics, what it is doing, not the United States and NATO allies.
1: Well, thank you, Jonathan, for putting this whole thing in a U.S. political perspective. But as we close, let me turn back to Andrea Kendall-Taylor. You know, we're talking about this so-called game. There are several camps, the so-called peace camp. We need to start negotiations. This can't last forever. We heard famously a former national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, say at the Davos Economic Forum, echoing President Emmanuel Macron of France's position, you know, we don't want to corner Russia. But that's seen as appeasement, particularly from Ukraine, because they're the ones who are under attack. They're losing people every day. They're Territory is being demolished. War crimes are being committed. So this gets us to the argument of how does this end? And there's the argument, too, about, and I'm going to be quoting historian Tim Schneider, who says, quote, what happens if Putin decides that he is losing in Ukraine? He will act to protect himself by declaring victory and changing the subject. He lives in a virtual world. He does not need an off-ramp, so to speak, in the real world, because that is not where his power rests close quote. That's that opinion. But once again, there's always that fear of what will trigger a potential use of a tactical nuclear weapon on the part of Russia. But what are some scenarios in your view?
2: Well, I think that the United States has been very clear about its position. This was clearly articulated in President Biden's New York Times op-ed, in which he said the United States will not pressure Ukraine to make any concessions. And that we the united states are looking to ukraine to define victory and success so our goal here is to put ukraine in as strong a position as possible on the battlefield i do think at some point this war will end at the negotiating table president zelensky has said as much but we all know that a country's position on the battlefield provides it leverage and strength in those negotiations and i think that is what the united states is playing for which is how do we put Ukraine in as strong a position on the battlefield so that they can go into some future negotiation in as strong a position as possible. The Russians are obviously seeing their incremental gains in the Luhansk region. They'll move on to Donetsk. I think the Russians believe that they will have success in the Donbass and perhaps strive to take more territory in the south. So I think from Putin's perspective, we know he lives as Tim Snyder was suggesting in the quote that you read. He lives in an alternate reality and I do hear from multiple interlocutors that President Putin thinks that the war is going decently well for Russia now, that they've turned a corner and that success in Ukraine, however he defines it, is attainable. So that suggests the Russians aren't in any position to want to come to the negotiating table now. And nor are the ukrainians they believe that their military has stronger morale with weapons continuing to flow in from the west they also believe too that they can defeat russia and push them back at least until the pre-february 24th line so president biden loves to say nothing about ukraine without ukraine and that's where the united states is and will remain
1: and you get the last word jonathan There is this discussion over when negotiations should start, what kind of territorial concessions Ukraine should or shouldn't make.
3: Carol, that is going to be up to Ukrainians to decide what is in their best interests for their security, for their future. There is, I think, universal belief, as long as Mr. Putin is in place, that he will be a threat to Ukraine's independence, to its security, to its democracy. I just want to make a big plug. I hope that the EU is thinking about candidate status for Ukraine. It's really important, I think, as Ukraine thinks through its future and its strength at the negotiating table with the biden administration saying i think it's accurate andrea said too that they need to be in the strongest possible position when they get to that negotiating table so being a member or on the membership track of the eu having the type of security guarantees what that looks like i haven't really seen articulated how that will fully be spelled out for the ukrainians they need to feel like there is a future for them that is free from the type of war the atrocities that they're going through right now to be able to go to the table so that their families and communities are firmly embedded in the euro atlantic community
1: and of course the greatest irony is that vladimir putin's desire to weaken the transatlantic alliance to weaken nato has actually backfired on him by invading Ukraine. I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and Jonathan Katz, Senior Fellow and Director of Democracy Initiatives at the German Marshall Fund. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.